I encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 19 is what I will be reading this morning and what we're going to be looking at um, this morning. So let me read for us Mark chapter 3, verses 7 to 19. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from, and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard that all he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw, them, saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up to on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bo Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Let's pray. Father, as we look at your word now, we ask that by your spirit you would enlighten our minds to understand Give us hearts to receive your word this morning, that we might delight in Christ and walk in his ways to the glory of his name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> well, it doesn't matter which era you live in, there's always figures or individuals who, who tend to be polarizing figures. These individuals become well-known within society and for several different reasons, and they naturally create response from us. They are figures, in one sense, who just simply can't be ignored. Everyone has an opinion of them. Everyone has to make their opinion known, especially today in our social media age. You take, for example, sports athletes like Michael Jordan or LeBron James and Kobe Bryant, everyone who is, in, is into sports has an opinion on them. You either love them or you, or you hate them. You either cheer for them or you hope to see them lose. Or you think of actors or act actresses that people love or, or dislike or, or political figures. Uh, you think of, for example, Abraham Lincoln or, or Martin Luther King Jr. or Winston Churchill. These men were were divining figures, so to speak. They, they divided people. They, they created reaction from people. You were either for them or you were against them. These individuals, in a sense, they, they demanded a response. Most of us will, will never experience what these individuals often have to experience in life. And we should be thankful for that. It's, it's hard enough uh, to deal with our, our own friends and family members, 
let alone the opinions of tens of thousands of people wanting to make their thoughts known about you. Most of us will, will never enter a room in which everyone in that room will, will stop to turn just to get a glimpse. But there are people like that, polarizing figures because of what they do or what they've said. Yet the reality is, there's no one more polarizing than Jesus. No matter where Jesus went, there was always a crowd, wondering who this man was and, and what he might say or do. His presence demanded a response from people. Jesus was simply a person you can't ignore. His teaching created reaction. His, his miracles created reaction from people. He was, and quite frankly is, still polarizing. He elicits reaction from people even today, even people who have never read the Gospels written about him. In Mark's Gospel, up until this point, there's, there's been a diversity of responses when it comes to Jesus. For example, going all the way back to chapter 1, 16 to 20, uh, you have Jesus who, who calls Simon and Andrew and, and James and John, and, and he calls them and he tells them that he's going to make them fishers of men, and, and their response is to drop everything they're doing, and they follow him. Or in chapter 1, 21 to 22, the people are, are astonished at his teaching, for he's one who teaches with authority, not like the scribes and the Pharisees. Or chapter 1, 23 to 28, we're, we're, we're told that the people are amazed at his authority to cast out the demonic. And then you go down to chapter 1, verses 40 to 45. Jesus, he, he heals the leper and he, he gives the leper specific instructions. But the leper, instead of listening to Jesus... He does the exact opposite of what Jesus instructed him to do. And of course, and then in chapter 2, 1 to 12, he, he heals the paralytic and, and, and tells the paralytic that his sins are forgiven. And there's both positive and negative reactions. There were those that, that responded in faith, but the religious leaders, they were offended by Jesus' words that this man could heal this person's sins, the paralytic's sins. Then in chapter 2, 13 to 14, he calls Levi, the, the tax collector, to follow him. And, and he does exactly what, what Peter and Andrew and James and, and John do. They, he drops everything. He leaves his tax booth and he follows after Jesus. And then in the same chapter of uh, 2, verses 15 to 17, we have sinners and, and tax collectors. And they're celebrating with Jesus while, while the religious leaders are offended with the fact that Jesus would even sit down and have a meal with such filthy people. And then, of course, you come to chapter 3, verse 1 to 6, which we looked at a few weeks ago. Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath. And the response of the religious leaders is not to worship or not even to be amazed, but the response is to plot with the Herodians how they might kill him, how they might destroy him. So in all these passages, we, we see reactions from people that, that show obedience, faith, disobedience, shock and amazement, 
and even hatred. Jesus is a polarizing figure. So the Pharisees and the Herodians, they plot to destroy Jesus at the end of verse 6 of chapter 3. And it's at this point that that Jesus withdraws with his disciples to the sea. And again, we, we see another reaction to Jesus, another response. We're told in verse 7 that a great crowd followed. And this crowd was from Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, and from Tyre and Sidon. Now it's interesting that, that through Jesus' ministry, he actually goes to all of these areas except Idumea. Now no one knows how large this crowd must have been. But we see that the fame and popularity of Jesus from this passage. Think about this. He, he's only done ministry in Galilee at this point. Yet word of him has spread to all these other areas and, and people from all these other areas are flocking and they are interested in seeing who this man is. And this is, this is before there were ever telephones or cell phones or the internet. The multitudes are, are attracted to Jesus. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with the fact that, that Jesus' fame or Jesus' name is being spread and, and people are, are wanting to, to see him. But when we look at the passage, there should be concern for why the people are drawn to him. What was it that, that caused all these multitudes of people to want to get near him? Well, we're told in, in the middle of verse 8, we, we read this. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. All that he was doing, when they heard about all that he was doing, they came to him. You see, it, it wasn't so much his teaching that this large crowd came, but his doing. Specifically, his works of miracles. So overwhelming was this crowd that Jesus even had to ask his disciples to get a boat ready for him for fear that the crowd would crush him. Almost, in a sense, like, like a celebrity needing security from his crazy fans and, and the paparazzi. Now, why, why was this happening? Well, well, verse 9 and 10 tell us. Look at verse 9 and 10. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. Here it is. For he had healed many. Now it's possible that means he had healed many in this specific crowd or simply that he had healed many and this crowd had heard about it. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. See, here's this crowd. They've heard that Jesus has healed or they've seen it and they are pressing around him to touch him. You see, this, this crowd primarily saw Jesus as a miracle worker. They wanted to benefit from his healing power. You, you can imagine the scene. All these people flocking to him, trying to push through each other to get to him to such a degree that they had the potential of crushing him, which probably means there were other people that were trampled on. But here's the thing. Jesus' primary calling was not to do miracles, but it was to preach the kingdom of God 
and repentance. As he said to his disciples in chapter 138, after the crowds were, were continuing to look for him, he says to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. That was my purpose. See, Jesus was primarily focused and concerned with, with preparing people for the coming of the kingdom. Though miracles were a part of his ministry, revealing that, that the kingdom was on the move, they were not his primary focus. But this crowd was attracted to Jesus for his healing power. That's why they flocked to him. They, they were drawn by what he did, not by what he said. In one sense, there's, there's nothing wrong with desiring for Jesus to heal you. There are several individuals, individual accounts in the scriptures where, where, where people come to Jesus asking for healing and Jesus joyfully and delightfully heals them. But something seems different here. I think Mark is capturing something about this crowd that describes a lot of people when it comes to Jesus. I think this crowd is amazed attracted, drawn to Jesus as a miracle worker. They want the benefits of his miracle power, but that doesn't mean they're followers of him. You see, being attracted to Jesus because of what he can possibly do for you doesn't mean you're his disciple. This crowd, in one sense, has reduced Jesus to a miracle worker. They have every intention to benefit from him, but lack any intention to submit to him. He's a miracle worker. That's what he's come for. All this business about repentance and, and taking up your cross isn't all that important. All I need to do is touch him. But, but no need to, to bow before him and give him my allegiance. They want the blessing of his miracles, but will they joy, joyfully follow his hard teachings? But this crowd isn't some unique exception. People today still respond to Jesus in a similar way. We're still prone to reduce Jesus to what we want him to be rather than who he actually is. Today, there are many who, strangely enough, do reduce Jesus to a miracle worker. They follow him because they, they want healing or they, they want that breakthrough. But when it never comes, they become disappointed in Jesus. There are those, strangely enough, who also reduce Jesus to what I call love but not the love of the Bible, not the love of the, of, the, of the Jesus in the scriptures, but rather the love of modern secular society. This, this idea of love is simply tolerance, accepting you no matter what, a love that has no moral standards, a love that has no connection, no relationship to truth. This isn't the Jesus of the Bible. This kind of Jesus, dare I say, is a coward and a pushover. It's a Jesus that, that makes you feel comfortable with the, with the sin in your life because he's willing to tolerate such sin. He accepts you just the way you are. 
You see hard sayings of Jesus like Matthew 5, 29 to 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members and that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members and that your whole body go into hell. You see, there's no way Jesus could have said that because he's loving and, and tolerant. Jesus wouldn't, wouldn't talk about hell and judgment. That's not the Jesus I believe in. Well, friend, the Jesus of your imagination isn't the Jesus of reality. You cannot reduce Jesus to what you want him to be. You must be willing to accept him on his own terms. This crowd reduced him to a miracle worker and merely wanted to use him for healing. And here's the question. Will you use Jesus or will you follow Jesus? Will you be amazed by Jesus, but not submit to Jesus? See, often it's in the midst of suffering where we discover whether or not Jesus is merely useful to us or whether he is truly Lord over us. When suffering happens or, or things don't go the way we think they should go, and all of a sudden, you're no longer into Jesus, or all of a sudden, you, you don't believe that Jesus is trustworthy. It reveals that you've only really ever treasured Jesus for what he can do for you, and what you think he ought to do for you, rather than treasuring him for simply who he is. See, friends, Jesus isn't some genie in a bottle that we can call upon when we need something. Jesus is king, and he demands not just our amazement, but also our allegiance. You see, this crowd in, in Mark chapter 3, I think, is similar to the crowd in, in John chapter 2, 23 to 25, where, where we read this. Now, when he was in Jerusalem, that is Jesus, at the Passover feast, Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. They believed because they saw his miracles. But he refused to entrust himself to them because he knew what was in them. He knew their belief was merely a result of the miracles. They were amazed, but they didn't truly place their faith in Christ. You know, it's interesting when you, when you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the, the crowds that follow Jesus are always something to observe. There are many who follow him, but, but there are also many who are merely astonished and amazed by him. And when pressed with a hard truth by Jesus, they end up deserting him. For example, in, in John 6, Jesus is speaking about him being the bread of life, and he, and he tells this crowd of disciples, and he, he says to them, you must 
eat my flesh and, and drink my blood. And this is what we read. This is how they respond, many of them. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The, the flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not actually believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So here's this crowd, these professing disciples of Jesus, and Jesus is teaching a hard saying. And they're shocked at what he's saying. They respond by saying, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to? And Jesus presses in and pushes in even further. And we're told that because they heard this hard saying, many of them, many of his self-professing disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. You see, they were drawn to Jesus for many things, but they were not truly his disciples. And here in Mark chapter 3, merely wanting to touch Jesus for healing or being amazed by Jesus isn't enough. And so the question is, will you follow him and surrender your life into his hands? Not merely to be amazed by him, but to submit to him as Lord. There was also another reaction to Jesus in the midst of the crowd, and, and that is the response of the demonic, which we read in verse 11 to 12. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. As we looked at chapter 1, verses 21 to 28, several weeks ago, we saw that, that the demonic's declaration of Jesus being the Son of God was an attempt in some form to control Jesus. Kind of like the, the mob boss who, who tells someone who's working for him, I know your name and, and I know where you live. I, I know who your wife is. He's saying that to try to control the individual. And that's what the demonic is trying to do here. They, they fall down because they have to before the king of kings. But they are trying, they are attempting to control Jesus. Now, of course, the, the demonic's attempt to control Jesus is frivolous and futile. Jesus merely commands them and they obey him. And we're told in verse 12 that he strictly ordered them to not make his name known. He would not let the demonic speak on his behalf, reveal who he was to the crowds. He himself would make himself known when he was ready to do so. Remember, Jesus knew the people would have crowned him Messiah if they had found out his identity. But he knew before his crowning a cross laid before him. 
we see the, the absolute foolishness of the demonic in this passage in their attempt to control Jesus. But if you think about it, the crowd isn't actually all that much different. You see, in their, in their reducing of Jesus to a miracle worker, in a sense, they are attempting to control him. They're attempting to make Jesus what they want him to be, not who he has revealed himself to be. And we're all prone to this, this desire to control Jesus, to have him conform to our ways and what we want. But you can't control Jesus. You can't conform Jesus any more than you can control a lion. You must give up your control and cry out, not my will, but your will be done. So the crowd presses in around Jesus. The demonic are cast out. But this scene, we're told, but after this scene, we're told in verses 13 to 17, that Jesus goes up into the mountain and, and calls to him his disciples. And he appoints 12 of them as his apostles. As he says here in verses 13 to 17, And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out, so that he might send them out to preach, and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, and Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So here we're introduced to the twelve that Jesus set apart as his apostles. First we have Peter, who people are probably most familiar with. He, he tends to put his foot in his mouth quite often, but he's also the one who's given the name Peter the Rock, because he is the rock on which Christ will build his church, the foundation. And then we have James and John, whom Jesus called in chapter 1 to follow him. These were the sons of thunder, the, the name Jesus gave them. And if you remember, they were the ones who, who asked to sit at the right hand and left hand of Jesus in his kingdom. And his disciples, were, other disciples were quite upset about that. And then we have Andrew, Peter's brother, and Philip, who, if you remember, was the one in John 14, 8, who asked Jesus to show them the Father. Next is Bartholomew, who, who we don't actually know much about. And then Matthew, who most think was, was Levi, the tax collector, that Jesus called to himself. And then Thomas, who has sadly been given the name Doubting Thomas, but history tells us that he went and brought the gospel to India. And then we have James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, whom we also know very little about. And then, of course, Simon the Zealot, who before following Jesus would have been considered most likely a rebel, willing to kill Roman soldiers in order to deliver Israel from Roman oppression. And then finally, Judas Iscariot, the one who we know will betray Jesus, and Jesus also knows. It's interesting, in Luke's account of this uh, moment, in Luke 6, 12-16, we're told that Jesus goes up into the mountain and he actually prayed all night. And then it was day where he called his disciples to him and out of his disciples, he appointed these 12 as apostles. 
Now, there are several things I want you to see here. For one, you would think that Jesus would have chosen far more worthy men to be his apostles. There's nothing unique about these men. Four of them were fishermen, ordinary men. One was a traitor to his own people, a tax collector. The other, a rebel. And of course, Judas, the betrayer of Jesus. You would think that Jesus would choose the greatest of men that society had to offer. But he doesn't do that. In fact, he rarely ever does that. Might it be that he does this to display his power and glory through weakness? You think of the choosing of King David. He was neither tall nor strong nor handsome like his other brothers, but he was God's chosen servant because he was a man after God's own heart. This is precisely what the Apostle Paul argues in 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29, that, that God chooses that which is weak to display his glory and power through weakness. As he says, For consider your calling, brothers, that not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God chooses what you least expect. He chooses the weak, the foolish, according to worldly standards, to accomplish his purposes, to display his power and glory through weakness. You know, I, I think of my father who, when he was 17 years old and wasn't following Jesus, and he was a hippie, a drug-smoking hippie, and God saved him from his sin, and God then, several years later, raised him up to go to the Philippines to be a missionary. Why would God take this white Irish Canadian boy to the Philippines to be a missionary and to plant churches in the Philippines? It seems foolish. It seems like it doesn't make any sense, but that's precisely what God does. Or my father-in-law, who, who was also a, uh, a church planter with my father in the Philippines and then went to Spain to be a missionary and then also came to Canada where English is not his first language, and yet God has used him to lead many Canadians to the Lord. This is what God does. He uses people that you least expect to accomplish his purposes. Also, unlike the crowds who were pressing in around Jesus close to crushing him, here Jesus calls whom he desires. And they come. And the obvious point is, is there's a difference to being amazed by Jesus and being called by Jesus. Not only this, but, but in his appointing of the twelve as apostles, he uniquely establishes them as the ones who will carry on his mission after he is gone. As we read in verse 14, the reason for his appointing them so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. 
You know, it's interesting, in the Gospels, Jesus makes almost no mention of the church, except in Matthew 16 and 18. But the reality is, from the very outset of his ministry, he's already preparing for the inauguration of the church. And his appointing of the twelve is evidence of this. As the scriptures tell us in Ephesians 2.19, where Paul writes, So then, brothers, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, the church, built on the foundation of what? The apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. You see, Christ is, is already beginning to lay the foundation for God's household here in Mark chapter 3. The apostles had a unique calling from Jesus that no other Christian has. They were to lay the foundation for the church, but their calling isn't so unique that there isn't similarities between their calling and every follower of Jesus. Think about this. Christ called us and saved us because he desired us despite the fact that we were unworthy sinners, just like these 12 apostles. He called us just like these apostles to be with him. He saved us in order that we might have fellowship with him and be with him. But not only that, he has commissioned us to be his witnesses to proclaim his excellencies, to be his disciples, and to carry on his kingdom work through the power of his spirit. For we are the body of Christ in this world. And he died for these realities to be true in us. You see, here with the, the calling of the twelve, we get a picture in one sense of what true discipleship is of what it really means to follow Christ, to be with him, to do the work that he has set before us, to follow him as the Lord over our lives. See, in this passage, you see clearly the contrast between a true disciple and those that merely want the benefits of Jesus. A true disciple, hear me, knows the benefits of Jesus. Any Christian knows the amount of blessings and gifts that God has given us. But a true disciple is also eager and committed to follow Jesus and to fulfill the work that he's given us to do, the work of accomplishing his purposes in our world. A false disciple merely wants to use Jesus for selfish gain. Which one describes you? The crowd that merely wants the benefit of his miraculous power? Or the disciples who are with him and are commissioned by him? Will you seek to use Jesus? Or will you submit to Jesus and follow him no matter the cost. I pray it will be the latter. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for all the times where we have simply used Jesus for our own benefit, rather than truly treasuring him, following him, 
and submitting to him. Help us to be worthy disciples of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Christ's name.